Good morning, good morning, good morning, Discover Church. How's everybody feeling today? Some of y'all just realized we crossed over the halfway point of summer. I would have expected y'all to be a little bit more excited because the kids are going back to school soon. They just, <laughs> they just ended summer school. That's what it is. Well, it's good to see you guys today. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Journey, and it's my privilege to be the pastor here. Let me ask you a question this morning as we get started. How many of you ever heard the phrase, behind every good man is a good woman? And all the ladies said, amen. Man, I, listen, I have experienced this to be absolutely true in pretty much every scenario that I've ever, I've ever been in contact with. All right. I like to think of it a little bit differently. Um, I like that phrase, but I, I like to think of it slightly differently. And, and I think of it like this. If ever you find a good man, it's because of a good woman. And that good woman might be your mom. It might be your grandma. It might be your girlfriend, your fiance, your wife. Uh, maybe it was, maybe it was your daughter. I, I don't know. But what I have seen over and over and over again is that anytime you find a good man, you will find a good woman that helps shape that man to become a good man. And what I love about, um, God is that God in his infinite wisdom knew that, you know, he created Adam first in Genesis and, and it didn't take long. And God looked down from heaven and said, it is not good that man should be alone. It is not good. I will make him a helper. And all the men said, amen. God knew in his infinite wisdom that men and women, uniquely interesting creatures, each one, that God knew that, that, that creation was going to need both men and women working in harmony together to make a peaceful, beautiful, and useful society. One of the things that I love about the Bible is that the Bible continually shows how God breaks through stereotypes and barriers and how God continually busts through the doors and busts through um, barriers to, to, to show that he absolutely 100% understands, sees, and recognizes the intrinsic value and dignity in every single person. Each one created in his image, but man and woman, male and female, created to serve in interesting roles and different capacities in God's creation. What we see in the pages of Scripture that that it was written um, all throughout the time of Scripture, that each portion of Scripture was written, it was written in a time, in an era, in an age that was overwhelmingly male-dominated patriarchal society. In any era that you open your Bible and read about, it was written in a time where women had very little rights. They had very little opportunity. They had very little legal standing. Most of the times in the eras, when you open your Bible and read it, you will find that, that women not only oftentimes did not even have a say in their own house, but they didn't have the ability to be able to own and operate a business or to be able to own land on their own. Yet God busts through all of those patriarchal good boy clubs, good old boy clubs, and he sees and acknowledges women throughout the pages of scripture and he uses women all throughout the pages of scripture to do powerful, incredible, and uniquely awesome things because God has preserved for us 
so that we can see the attention and the intention that God has demonstrated to be able to see and hold up women to be used by him to do incredible things. And such is the time and such is the case of the person that we're going to study today. Now, last week we studied the life of Abraham and I told you last week that Abraham was in all probability, in my opinion, he is the second most important person in all of the Bible behind Jesus. And I'm gonna tell you that today, the person that we're gonna study today is I believe the second most influential person in all of the Bible behind Jesus. And today we're gonna study Abraham's wife whose name was Sarah. Now listen, let me tell you, fellas, uh, I realize that you're hearing me talk about the ladies and you're thinking it's about time. It's about time. I can check out. Why couldn't we have done this during football season? Um, Listen, I just want to tell you, if you are not a lady... Um, don't check out because there is, there is still plenty of good things that I believe that God wants to encourage you and challenge you with from his word today. But today's message is gonna have a little bit of a slant to it to the ladies. Is that okay, ladies? Now you may, the ones who didn't say anything are thinking, great. The preacher man is getting ready to tell me all the things I'm doing wrong as a woman. I can promise you that's not where we're going today. All right, so just want to want to want to delay and belay any fears that you might have. The text has led us to talk about ladies today, and so we're going to talk about talk to the ladies today. But listen, let me let you in on a little secret. <clears throat> At some point in the next year, I'm going to do a whole series for the fellas, and so I'm coming after your man. All right, so just know that's coming. So I'm not trying to single anybody out. God's word is equal opportunity, and so am I. So we're going to dive into this today, Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to learn some incredible things of what it looked like for Sarah to live by faith. We're in Hebrews 11. If you're in Hebrews chapter 11, let me hear you say, by faith. Hebrews 11, verse 11, it says this, by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. A little quick stop. I always find it interesting sometimes the language that the Bible uses. Sometimes it grosses me out. Like there are so many better ways to say certain things, I would think, than to say she received strength to receive seed. That just makes me feel weird saying that out loud. Verse 12, therefore from one man, fellas, how would you like this to be your description that somebody gives you someday? Therefore, from one man, that's Sarah's husband, Abraham, and him as good as dead. There's a wife right now that's not laughing because she's going, what you laughing about? We're born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the sea shore. So what did Sarah do? Sarah lived by faith. But what does it look like for Sarah to live by faith? What does it look like for her as a person, specifically as a woman, specifically as a wife? What did it look like for Sarah to live by faith? Well, as we've done each week in this series, we're starting in Hebrews 11, and then we're jumping back into the pages of the Bible where this person's life is recorded. We're gonna do that today. You can go to Genesis 18, where we're gonna be in just a second. And before you get there, I wanna, I wanna provide a little bit of context. Genesis 12 through 16 is primarily focusing on Abraham. 
Abraham, uh, we studied him last week. I'm not going to re-preach that message. I encourage you to go back and check it out if you missed it. Um, but it, it tracks the story of Abraham. But when we get to Genesis chapter 18, God now gives us a peek into a window of what things are like for Sarah. All right, and this is what I love about God because God, God doesn't leave people out. God, God brings them in and God lets us to see what their life was like. And so as we read the life of Sarah, ladies, I want to invite you to think of yourself in her context. I want you to think of yourself in her situation. Genesis 18 begins with what scholars refer to as a Christophany. All right, say that word, Christophany. Congratulations, you now sound much smarter than you actually are. That's how most scholars, by the way, feel when they say those super fancy words. A Christophany basically means that was um, somebody, that was funny. I think I know who that was. It's laughing. Um, a Christophany basically means that it is, a, it is a moment where Jesus shows up into the pages of the Old Testament. He shows up in the flesh to have an interaction with somebody in the Old Testament. And this is odd because Jesus isn't born until the beginning of the New Testament. But we know that Jesus is not just a man. He is fully God and fully man. He's not bound by the laws of physics and science because he created the laws of physics and science. And so Jesus shows up with two of his homeboys, two angels, and we don't know what their names are. And they show up at Abraham's door. And in the culture of Abraham's day, theirs was an honor-based culture. All right, it was a, it was a, a culture whereby um, it was it was you you were kind of known by how much you honored other people, and one of the ways that they would honor strangers is if a stranger showed up at your door. It's a lot different than it is like today. Like most of the times, let's be honest, if somebody comes walking around your door and knocking on your door, it's always at dinner time, by the way, and it's never convenient. I guess I'm the only one that feels that way. Because I usually think somebody trying to sell me something and you, you dumb enough to think I'm going to buy it at dinner time. I'm hangry. This is not a good time for me. But in Abraham's day, when somebody shows up, then what they would do is they would put on a big spread because it was, it was a way to honor them by showing incredible hospitality. So Abraham puts on a big fancy meal. And after they finish eating the meal, we find that Jesus says this in Genesis 18, verse nine. And it says, and they, they said to him, hey, where is Sarah, your wife? And so he said, well, she in the kitchen. That's not what he said. That was supposed to be a joke and that wasn't funny. I repent and apologize. 10 years ago, that would have been funny, but it's a new time and I'm sorry. So he says, she's right here in the tent. Now, now listen, when we read this, this might seem like a little bit of a silly question, right? Like Jesus is the creator of all things. And like, does he not know where Sarah is? But they're not asking the question because they're unsure about where Sarah is. I believe that they're asking the question because they're trying to help Abraham learn a lesson. And they're not saying, hey, man, When's the last time you saw Sarah? Can you tell me where she is? Instead, I think the question would be, would be inferred that the meaning would be, hey, all this chaos and crazy that you've been going through, where's Sarah been? You see, what, is, what has Abraham's journey been? If you remember from last week, Abraham followed God's voice to leave a safe, comfortable, and very familiar place with, with wealth and respect and authority and leadership to leave for a very unfamiliar, uncomfortable place to start a new family in a new, uncomfortable location. But I'm curious, have you ever stopped to think about what would that have been like for Sarah? I mean, ladies, perhaps you've been here. 
Your husband comes home with a new idea. Babe, I've been thinking. I think that we should fill in the blank. And you're going, dear Lord, help me. Abraham came home to Sarah and said, hey, babe, I've been thinking we need to move. Okay, where are we going? I don't know. How are we going to get there? Not sure yet. Uh Uh-huh. When are we leaving? Now. Oh, okay. And so what does Sarah do? Sarah follows her husband who has this wild-eyed faith on what must have felt like a wild goose chase for her. Now, we didn't cover this in the story last week because I ran out of time. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 12 and again in Genesis chapter 20. But in the process of this relocation effort and establishing a new family in a new place, ladies, get this, not once, but twice, Abraham tells somebody that Sarah is not his wife. Now, listen, I'm gonna tell you, Y'all think Hollywood tells the good stories. I'm telling you, the good stuff's in the Bible. On two different occasions, Abraham and Sarah passed through the kingdom of some other, some other uh, uh, people group, and each kingdom has a king. And what was customary in those days is that the king had like crazy authority and crazy rights. And so if the king saw a woman that he was particularly fond of, he would just be like dibs. And the husband or the man basically had nothing to, nothing to say about it. And so what happened is, is that if the king had found a woman, it was like dibs, but she was married, then oftentimes what would happen is, is the king would have the husband killed so he could take the woman as his own. Like, I'm so sorry about that. Come on in here. Let me snuggle you. Abraham, trying to save his own skin on two different occasions, goes, yeah, she's not my wife. That's my sister right there. Mm-hmm. That's my sister. I know we're close, but it's because we're brother, sister. And here's what's crazy. On both accounts, God shows up and intervenes in miraculous ways. And somehow, some way, God organizes it where when they leave that kingdom, they leave with more money in their pockets than they did when they got there because those two kings were scared out of their minds because of what they had done. And so they tried to cover it up by giving Abraham and Sarah some more money. Like, I'm, my bad, my bad. You just take this and you just go on, get on out of here. All right, take your family and your kids and your grandma and all them and go. And then Abraham and Sarah finally get the opportunity to settle and they, they basically fulfill the dream that I, as I've come to understand it, every woman, every young girl ever has ever dreamt of. To have a family and raise them in a tent in a strange place where you have no family or no friends to help you. Listen, Sarah's been through a lot. And so when they ask Abraham, Abraham, where's your wife? They're trying to help Abraham see like, bro, do you understand how good of a woman you've got? Now listen, I can promise you that none of this stuff was on Sarah's vision board of the stuff that she put together for what she hoped her life would become. Yet, this is what she's gone through, and this is what she's been through. And so, ladies, I just want to ask this question today as we continue in the message. Where are you today? How are you coming into this place today? How are you tuning in online to listen to this message today? Are you emotionally, physically, spiritually 
dialed into the Lord? Are you dialed into who God is and, and what God has said about you? Are you dialed in and, 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 and able to, to hear and see and understand where God is, where God's leading, what God's speaking, and are you following close after him? Or are you here today and maybe life has kind of beat the crap out of you a little bit? Are you here today and maybe mentally, emotionally, spiritually, or physically, you feel like you're just kind of beat up? tired. Because of that, maybe, maybe you might be having a hard time hearing or seeing or knowing who God is and where God is and what God is trying to speak to you. And because of that, are you, are you hearing too many of the whispers of the enemy trying to tell you what, what, what the enemy thinks of you, that, that, that you might believe what the enemy thinks of you instead of believing what God has already declared about you? Where are you today? Because as we continue in this story of Sarah and as the story unfolds, I, I want that to, to resonate in your soul as we, as we dive in to see more about who Sarah is and what God's doing. Jesus and his angels promise again, this is, this is one in a long string of promises that God has been giving to Abraham, that God has been giving to Sarah, that you are going to have a child. And they make the promise again. And then we find this. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. This, this phrase, past the age of childbearing, means that she was no longer menstruating. It was no longer physically capable. She was no longer physically possible of, of having a child. Because of that, verse 12, therefore, Sarah laughed within herself and said, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord? My Lord being old also? Now listen, this isn't a joyful laugh. This isn't, you know, like a cheerful, everybody, you know, someone said a funny joke kind of laugh. That's not what this is. This is a, <laughs> okay, yeah, right, all right, uh-huh, mm-hmm, kind of laugh. Sarah is in disbelief at what she's hearing. She's going so far as to say, yeah, okay, right, gotcha. Do you know how old we are? Listen, we... Shall I even have pleasure anymore because my Lord is so old? Fellas, we feeling real good about right now. Now listen, I, I don't know what that looks like, okay? When I was younger and I would think about like my parents and my grandparents being married, that kind of grossed me out, all right? But now that I have been married for a while and I think about Sarah saying, we so old, we ain't even having pleasure no more. Like, I don't know how old that is, but that's old. Then it says this, verse 13. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? I love this. I, wonder, I wish it told us what Abraham was thinking in this moment. Like, hey man, why is your wife laughing? This is one of those moments that it's not recorded in scripture. I'm choosing to believe because Abraham practiced incredible godly wisdom to shut your mouth. Fellows, we would do well to practice Abraham's example. Why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Then another promise. At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. 
The next verse is really interesting that it's recorded for us. But Sarah denied it saying, Mm-mm, no, I didn't. I did not laugh. For she was afraid. I mean, if Jesus shows up into your life and he tells you something and you laugh in his face, you'd be afraid too. And then Jesus said, oh no, but you did laugh. I know, I heard it. Because I'm Jesus. Verses 13 and 15, Jesus catches Sarah, that Sarah laughed and he responds to it. And as he does, we find this incredibly critical question that we need to answer today. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, the initial knee-jerk churchy answer is go, nope, uh-uh, there ain't nothing too hard for the Lord. But I think if we were being honest, we would confess that there are probably some times where we don't actually believe this by the things that we get stressed about, the things that we get anxious about, the things that we get nervous about, the things that we freak out about. Sarah's having a hard time believing something that God is telling her that he is going to do. And she can't understand, she can't make any sense of it. But I believe that Jesus, what he asked Abraham and Sarah in this moment, thousands of years ago, preserved for us in the word of God is a question that Jesus wants to ask you today. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You see, here's what I believe. I believe that sometimes we can get so bogged down in the, in the, 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 the monotony of life, the, the, the mundane of life, the frustrations of life. Sometimes we can get so beat up by the stuff of life that we actually begin to lose sight and forget who our God is. And so I would like to just for a moment take a, take a second to just remind you, or perhaps if you don't know who the God of creation is, who the God of the Bible is, I'd like to take a moment to remind you that our God is the one who spoke the galaxies into existence. That our God is the one who formed dirt together and then breathed the breath of life into it and humanity was created. Our God is the one that has every single star numbered and at the same time knows the exact number of hairs that are on your head. Our God is the God who establishes the boundaries for the waves and he stores up the snow and the rain in the heavens. Our God is the one who holds together your very being because he knit your very being together when you were in your mother's womb. And he holds the cells and the molecules together at a molecular nuclear level inside of your body. Our God is the God who speaks to the storms and storms stop. Our God is the God who resurrects dead things and resuscitates dead dreams. Our God is the God who laid his life down on the cross and on the third day when the devil was still dancing on his grave, spoke to the stone, move, because I'm getting out of here. Our God is the creator of the universe. He's the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the one who was and is and is to come. Our God is the one who said, I see you in your sin and I love you anyway. Our God is the one who says, I am a friend that will stick closer to you than a brother. Our God is the God who says, I will never leave you forsake you. Our God is the God who says, if you are tired and weary, come to me and I will give you rest. Our God is the God who gives value and dignity to every single person that has ever been created. Our God is the 
the God that says, I see your hardship and I see your heartache and I am walking with you in it. Our God is the God who says, someday I'm going to come back. And when I come back, I'm bringing a new heaven and new earth. And I'm going to establish a perfect place where there will be no more death. There will be no more sin. There will be no more burdens. There will be no more sickness because you will have a glorified, perfect body. And you and I will live in perfect harmony and perfect peace with one another in a perfect place. Our God is the God who says, I love you. I see you. I died for you. And I am with you. That is who our God is. And I think sometimes the stuff that the enemy brings into our life and the way that he distracts our focus from the, from who God is, that we forget and we lose sight of who God is. And I just have to tell you today, church, there is absolutely nothing that our God cannot do. There is nothing our God cannot do. Turn and tell your neighbor, there is nothing my God cannot do. Now turn and tell your second choice and say, I'm sorry about that, but I gotta let you know something. There's nothing that my God cannot do. For all the people tuning in online, can we say it together? There is nothing our God cannot do. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Maybe you're here today and you're going through hardship. Maybe you're facing uncertainty. Maybe you're going through some stuff. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks. Maybe you're teetering on the edge of an addiction. Maybe you're facing a difficult situation or a difficult decision. Maybe you just need to be encouraged and reminded today of who our God is and to be reminded that there is nothing that he cannot do. And I'd love to encourage you today with this fact and this truth. Jesus is the God who does impossible things for breakfast so he can spend the rest of the day with you. That's who our God is. It's important that the text includes that Sarah denied laughing. This, is, um, this becomes kind of a literary placeholder. It's something that is included in the story, included in a narrative so that, so that it might foreshadow just a little bit so that when the next thing happens, you can think back and remember, oh, I remember that. And that's what happens right here. The fact that it, it, it preserves for us that Sarah laughed and that she denied laughing. And Jesus is like, oh, yes, you did. I heard it. Because what would happen a year later brings that moment that scripture preserved for us in Genesis 18 into full circle. Because a year later in Genesis 21, this is what we find. And the Lord visited Sarah and he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And then here comes the reason for the literary placeholder. Verse six, and Sarah said, God has made me laugh. And all who hear about this, (laughs) they're gonna laugh with me. Why? Because verse seven, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. You see, the first time Sarah laughed in disbelief at what God wanted to do. 
You going to do what now? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sure. But the second time, Sarah laughed because of what God did. Before I continue and, and, and close out the message, I want to take a little aside, if I may, and speak to the ladies, specifically speak to the wives for just a moment. It's important that we understand that what, what God wants us to understand here about Sarah I believe that I can say with a great deal of certainty that given the things that we have discovered today about some of the decisions that Abraham made, Abraham was no saint. Just think about all the stuff that Abraham put her through. The journey, the denials. Not my wife, she's my sister, bro. So, you know, do what you gotta do. Just leave me out of it, don't kill me. still, Sarah followed him. In fact, the apostle Peter would later include Sarah as the example for wives to follow for the moments that your husband does not act like a saint. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter addresses marriage and he speaks to marriage and the Bible talks a lot about marriage in a lot of different places. This is one of them. And Peter says this, wives, 1 Peter 3, 1, wives likewise be submissive to your own husband. Now listen, I get it. That's a word that we don't like using today and I understand that, but the Bible establishes an incredible track record that husbands and wives are supposed to mutually submit to one another as, they, as a secondary act from their primary act, which is to each of them individually submit to the Lord. And so, so Peter now is just kind of echoing a thing that is repeated multiple times throughout scripture. And in this particular passage, he's looking to the ladies first and he says, wives, likewise, submit to your own husbands that even if they do not obey the word, even if they act like an idiot, even if they're not following God, even if they're not making godly decisions, if their life does not align with God's word, even if they do not obey the word, that they without a word, meaning without a word from you, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. What is the Bible saying? The Bible's saying, listen, I don't need your help. Now, I have been married for almost 15 years. A couple of weeks would be 15 years. And I can tell you that I have earned the right to be um, um, labeled as one who needs help. I'm offended that so many of you laughed at that. But the Bible's saying here, ladies, you don't win your husband over if, if he's in a season or a moment or if his life is not aligning with God's word. God doesn't need your help to play the Holy Spirit. Instead, ladies, what he's saying is that you would win your husband over with your chaste 
conduct accompanied by fear. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you are living in fear of your husband. It means that you are living in a holy fear of your God and that you are submitting yourself to your God. And as you submit yourself to your God and you allow God to be the Lord of your life, he calls the shots. He dictates the things that you say, the things that you do, the places that you go, the things that you allow yourself to get all worked up about. You allow God to be the one to direct your steps and your actions. And from that, the conduct that comes from that, that your husband would see the work of the Spirit of God in your life. And that your life, without saying a word and without being passive aggressive and without saying something without saying something, that your life would be a canvas whereby God would paint his goodness and grace for your husband to see. Verse three goes on and he says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. This is not saying that you shouldn't do any of those things, all right? I heard a, a pastor say one time, and it was, like, it was like a weird, awkward laugh, and I'm telling you that someone else said this so that you don't blame me for it, but he said, sometimes an old barn needs some new paint on it. And I thought, you, friend, are done. I did not say that. I said that for comedic purposes. He's not saying that you shouldn't arrange your hair, wear gold, or put on your fine apparel, but notice what he says. Rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, don't try to win your husband over by just, just putting on your fine clothes and, and, and making yourself look right. He's saying, listen, that might work, but, but he's not just focusing on, on the hair and the makeup and the clothes. What he's talking about is the external things that we have a tendency to do to try to solve internal problems. And what God is saying is, is ladies, listen, that's fine. You can do that, but, but don't do that if you're going to forsake the internal work that the Spirit of God wants to do in you so that the Spirit of God might do a work through you to your husband. By the way, this works both ways for husbands and wives. Then verse five, it says this, for in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. So now what is Peter saying? He's saying, listen, there's a whole long line of men who act like jackwagons. And because of that, there's a whole long line of holy women who learn to follow and trust the Lord and how God would want to use and work in and through them to do a work in their husband. Verse six, then he gives us Sarah as Sarah obeyed Abraham. That doesn't, don't, don't hear what that's not saying. It's not saying that Abraham lorded over her like some kind of dictator, right? It's simply a, a way of saying that Sarah trusted her husband, calling him Lord. She didn't worship him. Lord was a, was a title that was given to someone in a position of honor. And so she called him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. He's saying when you follow Sarah's example, you become like her. You don't live in fear and terror of, of what might happen if your husband doesn't do such and such the way that you think that he should. Because you live first in the fear of the Lord. You've already submitted yourself to the Lord. You've already trusted yourself to the Lord. Therefore, anything that happens, anything that has come into your lap has first passed through God's hands and God wants to work in the midst of whatever that might be. Am I saying that if your husband subjects you to other men that you should do it? Emphatically, no. 
That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you should follow Sarah's example in that sense. Scripture is very clear that we are to first submit ourselves to the Lord and then to our spouse. And so if our spouse leads us to do something that is ungodly, then we have a responsibility to stand on the authority of God's word and say, listen, that makes me uncomfortable. I feel like I would be violating my God. However, we are called to submit ourselves to one another. And specifically wives to submit themselves to the leadership of her husband. What I'm trying to say is is that, ladies, the way that you live with your husband is directly connected to how you view your life and relationship with Jesus. You will never be able to fully understand the fruit and the benefit that God has established in the order that he's created in your marriage if you are not first submitting and surrendering yourself to the lordship of Jesus. So what did this look like for Sarah? How did Sarah live by faith? Well, we go back to Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 11 tells us how she lived by faith. Verse 11 says, by faith, Sarah also received strength to conceive seed and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. What did Sarah do? How did Sarah live by faith? How can you ladies live by faith that you judge not your husband, but your God as faithful? Sometimes we carry these lofty expectations of our spouse to believe that they're never going to screw up, that they're never going to mess up, that they're never going to let me down. I don't know if you know this or not, but the person you're married to is just as jacked up, messed up, and broken and jagged as you are. And when two messed up, jacked up, broken, and jagged people try to come and live together and build a life together, you're going to hurt one another. And Sarah's life gives us an example that I'm not, I'm not basing my life, I'm not basing my condition of, of my soul and my spirit and my well-being just on whether or not my spouse always takes care of me, whether my spouse always does the right thing. No, 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 no. I am going to live by faith by first saying, I'm going to judge that my God is faithful even in the moments that I expect my spouse to be stupid. That's the first way that Sarah lived by faith. But here's the second, verse 12. Therefore, the one man from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand, which is by the seashore. This is a little bit more muddy, but I believe as I prepared through this and prayed through this, what God would have me tell you, specifically ladies, specifically wives, is that Sarah embraced God's call on Abraham's life as God's call on her life too. Because scripture says that when a husband and wife come together, they are one flesh, not two, but one. And it doesn't mean that every single thing that your spouse is interested in or feels led to do is the very exact thing that you are also supposed to be led to do. But when it comes to the vision, the direction, the call, the way that God wants to point your family towards him, that, that, that 
Sarah came to a point of surrender, came to a point of understanding by first judging God faithful and then recognizing this call that God has called put on my husband's life is a call that is applied to my life as well. We are inseparable. We are not getting a divorce. This isn't an option. We are going to stay together. And this call applies to both of us. Because without Sarah, there is no Isaac. It's interesting when you think back that Sarah tried to subvert that call by trying to send her maidservant Hagar to go sleep with her husband. This isn't working. Obviously, this is God's call on your life, not a call on my life. So listen, why don't you take her? She doesn't look bad. Just, you know, don't tell me about it. And they do, and they have a son. I talked all about this last week. But Sarah came to a point of realizing at some point after that incident with her husband and Hagar, Wait, 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 wait. The call on his life is also the call on mine because we're in this together. So what does this mean for us and how do we apply it to our lives practically as we wrap up? I believe that what Sarah's life would tell us is that we live by faith It begins by judging God as faithful. And this entire account of Hebrews 11 is one life after another, not just, not just stories, not just fables, but, but accounts of real people in real situations that had real difficult hardship, that faced insurmountable odds, that went against the impossible. But over and over and over again, we learn that by their faith in their God, whom they had judged to be faithful, They endured. They overcame. They survived. They were blessed. Living by by faith begins by judging God as faithful. What does that mean? It means that there's going to be some times God's going to show up into your story and he's going to tell you something and you're going to laugh and you're going to go, okay, yeah, sure, mm -hmm, got it. That was some weird pizza. I don't know what that was. You're going to laugh in disbelief. But in those moments, if you would be willing to live by faith and you would be able to press past the laughter of disbelief, that I believe that what happened is, is that, that you would find yourself, as Sarah did, living in the miracle as she held her son, Isaac, whom she bore, whom she nursed. You, like Sarah, will come to a point of not laughing in disbelief at what God wanted to do, but that you'd be able to come to the point of laughing in disbelief at what God did. If I could wrap it up in a sentence, the lesson from Sarah's life, it would be this. If you want miracles in your life big enough to make you laugh in disbelief, you have to be willing to accept a calling crazy enough to make you laugh in disbelief. If you want to be able to laugh and disbelieve at the amazing things that God has done, 
then you're going to have to be willing to position yourself and then to press forward by faith in situations when you laugh in disbelief of like, no, I did not, I'm not doing that. That's weird. No, uh, uh, mm. And the calling that God has on your life, what is that? It, it's the thing that you know if you were to do anything else that you would be disobedient. So let me ask you this today. What is God calling you to do? Maybe for some of you, it's, it's big, massive, life-changing, career-altering, neighborhood-relocating call. For some of you, it's not quite as big and life-altering and earth-shattering. Some of it, the call is in a moment to Extend forgiveness. Or maybe God would call you to serve somebody. Maybe God would call you to live with generosity in some way. And if you're here today, you're tuning in online and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God, the God of heaven, the God that we've been talking about is calling your name and saying, won't you come? Won't you come and enter into a relationship with me so that you can experience what life is supposed to be all about? What is God calling you to do? At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you've found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.